Go ahead and take your Bibles and go to Ephesians 5. Mike just uh, read that for us. Um, thanks for being here this morning. My name's Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and you are the MVPs. Not only did you endure the massive snowstorm and getting out of your driveway this morning, but you also endured the worst invention in all of history, daylight savings time. So I'm announcing right now my run for president of the universe while I will abolish that forever and ever and ever. Now, if you're here this morning, I am glad you're here. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, maybe you've been coming the last few weeks or or, or um, months even, we are certainly glad to have you. I would love to get a chance to meet you. So if you see us mingling around afterwards, make sure you say, hey, and do me a favor and tell me what your name is. Don't assume I know it, or else you will be forever. Hey, boss. That's my go-to. So, um, But if you're in the room um, and you are single, before I go any further, I want to talk to you. Okay. Um, I, I had the privilege of starting my ministry uh, as a single adult pastor. And so I feel like I have a unique perspective on where you're at. Whether you have never been married, you were married, you're single by choice or because of somebody else's choice, you need to know that I love you, but nowhere near as much as God loves you. Uh, in Christ, you are enough. You don't suddenly become a grown-up Christian when you get married. The church, um, not necessarily Uniontown, but the, the universal church as a whole, hasn't done a good job reminding ourselves of that, or even reminding you of that. So Paul does a great job. 1 Corinthians 7 is a fantastic passage to look at if you are single. He uses a couple of illustrations, but in the middle of that teaching, he says, Are you single? The King James says, Care not for it. Frank says, are you single? So what? Serve Christ with your singleness. That's the most important thing. So I know if you're single, you're sitting here like, boy, glad I got up early this morning to come listen to a message about marriage. Um, there'll be parts, I hope, that, that connect for you. So I'm not exactly sure how to jump in this morning to the passage, jump in um, to the uh, message itself. So I will begin probably the greatest quote outside of Scripture that has ever been written about marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. That blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, and love, true love, will follow you forever and ever. So twitter your love. NC. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> now, I love that movie, man. Princess Bride is one of the greatest movies ever. Romantic love is one of those things that is, is, starts, kicks off, is, is, uh, movies are focused around it. I mean, it becomes the end all be all, but the problem is romantic love also becomes one of the greatest idols in American culture. And so we're constantly pursuing, um, because we have the drive to find the one. Right? The one. You, you want to find that one, like um, Jerry Maguire, you know? You complete me! You want to find that, that one because at its core, at our very foundation, in our nature, the way God created us, we are creatures of companionship. 
We are creatures of companionship. And a movie, evidently I'm on a movie kick this morning, but a movie that pictures that so eloquently, so beautifully is, is this, I love this movie, uh, Castaway. Any of you ever seen Castaway? Amazing movie. Tom Hanks, one of the, one of the most amazing parts about that movie is he spends, it's, it's more than a half an hour of film time where there's no, there's no words. It's just him trying to survive on the island. Then you get that scene where he cuts his hand and he's angry and he hits the volleyball, right? And it comes out and doesn't look like a person, but he makes it look like a person. Wilson, right? Wilson, his buddy. And you, you follow the ebbs and flows of this guy trying to figure out what he's going to do to get off the island and, and just all the tragedies and then all the, the successes. But, but in all of that, what you find suddenly is the main character having a best friend. That's a volleyball. Because he was created for companionship. You get to the place where he's on the raft and he's making his escape and he, he ties Wilson, right? Uh, he uses the VHS, VHS tape to tie Wilson and um, the storm comes or something. And, and, what, and I don't know, this was just pointed out to me this week in a message that I listened to. As you, as you um, watch that movie, something that is missing up until that point where Wilson falls off the life raft, there is no music in that movie until the moment Wilson hits the water. And then you get this sad... What's amazing about it, though, is you know the response. Tom Hanks wakes up, he's like, Wilson! And he seriously considers jumping off his life raft to rescue his companion. Now, it's silly, but that pictures for you the reality of all of our hearts. We have been built for companionship. The problem is too many of us carry it to an extreme, and I count myself in this, and we begin looking at other people to provide for us what only God can actually provide. And what happens is we take those people and we elevate them onto this pedestal where they are going to be what controls if we have a good day or a bad day. They are going to be the ones who can speak life into us or not. They are the ones who are going to put a smile on our face or, or not. And what happens is as soon as you take that person from their logical place where they're supposed to be aligned with you and you elevate them to the place of idol, you destroy them because they weren't meant to carry that weight. So what we need to remember, both singles and married folks, is that marriage cannot fix the ache in your heart. No relationship can. Lonely, insecure single people get married, and they become lonely, insecure married people. And, and actually, if you can't be happy single, you won't be happy while you're married. What marriage does oftentimes is expose the emptiness in you. So while you are designed for companionship, and you are designed for relationships, and marriage is great and wonderful, please remember it isn't ultimate. There is only one who can fulfill that, that emptiness in your soul and give you a purpose of life, and it is not a husband, and it is not a wife. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to point you to the God of all creation, the God of the universe, the God who, who, who wanted to ransom you and rescue you and redeem you. And he says, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You come to me, you come to the Father, and you will experience a relationship that will fulfill all of that for you. What's interesting is that as Paul's working through Ephesians 5, he says marriage is great, and marriage isn't actually ultimate. In fact, what marriage is, 
is an application of verse 21. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 21. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Jesus Christ. Marriage is an application of that. How you submit to one another. So let me, just quick review. You've got to remember, you go back all the way to chapter 1. And Paul's done just this fantastic job of reminding us over and over again of who we were and who God is and what we have in Jesus Christ. He, he tells us in chapter 1, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He has predestined us as adopted sons, so now we are just his children brought into the family of God through adoption. We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. We have had his grace poured out on us. We have received an inheritance. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm praying for you, church at Ephesus, that your eyes would be enlightened so you might know what it is you have in Jesus Christ. Have you been praying that for yourself over the last couple of weeks, months? That's my prayer for you. That's my, been my prayer for me. And, and I, I, don't want to, I don't have time to get off into all the details, but, but I think this week God stirred my heart to see some things that I hadn't seen before. Paul reminds them, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You were following after the prince of the power of this air, this, this world, which is, which is Satan himself. You were carrying out the, the desires of your nature, the desires of your flesh. You had no hope. None at all. But God. Ephesians 2.4 remains one of those verses, right? But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for you, raised us and made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. And as Paul worked through the, the rest of Ephesians to, to where we get uh, almost a couple of weeks ago, he gets to chapter 4 and he says, now I want you to consider this calling that God has placed on your life, this calling where God has invited you into a relationship with him through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want you to consider that calling, that invitation. And what I want you to do as a result is I want you to walk worthy. I want you to live accordingly. Your life should demonstrate this calling that God has placed on it. So, so be Christ-shaped in all of your relationships. Not culture-shaped, Christ-shaped. And as we carried that out last week, we got to the very uh, uh, end of, of chapter, uh, just kidding, we got to the middle of chapter 5. As Paul unpacks what it looks like how to walk, he tells us don't be controlled by anything, but instead be controlled only by one. Be controlled by the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. How do you, what is an evidence of being filled with the Spirit? There were three, if you remember. There was uh, uh, unthinkable joy, where, where you're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart towards God. And again, we talked, it's not a musical, but it's us just oozing with this joy that's been placed in us because of what Jesus did for us. And then there's this, this radical thankfulness, giving thanks in all things, at all times. And then he said, and then it ends with us being Submissive. As you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are submitting to one another. And we define submission like this, taking our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our authority, our power, our position, any opportunities that have been given to us, not to build our own platform, but to spend and be spent for others, for their good, for God's glory. So as children of God, 
our most foundational relationships are to be marked by submission to each other. And he begins unpacking that by talking about marriage. So this is going to be a little different this morning. I mean, I think typically you hear a message on Ephesians 5, and it's like, okay, cool. Tell us what wives are supposed to do. Tell us what husbands are supposed to do. We won't listen to you. See you next week. And that's been my take on it. It's like, I've heard this a thousand times. So this will be a little bit different. So what I want to do, in case you are a guest with us, and you're like, man, he really didn't hit some of those points that should be hit. Let me throw this up here in front of you. Um, on our website, you can go to these dates and these passages. And there's a lot of unpacking that we have done together as a church family through the preaching and teaching of God's word, where you can find some of those things that, that I may not mention this morning. I'm going to mention a lot just because, just because it's me and I don't know how to edit um, but that will be another resource for you. We will post that online as well. There's a number of books you could read. Not every marriage book is a good book. There are over 140,000 books on marriage on Amazon right now. So get started, I guess. Um, some of the best ones, Tim and Kathy Keller wrote Meaning of Marriage. That one is amazing. Uh, Matt Chandler wrote Mingling of Souls. Uh, Francis Chan and his wife did You and Me Together. Uh, if, if you have been in premarriage counseling with me or are heading into premarriage counseling with me, it's a book that I now recommend to everyone. Um, it's very popular. It's called When Sinners Say I Do. <laughs> the title itself, you're like, thanks. Well, get used to it. Um, but I've got to talk a little bit about roles and responsibilities in marriage or else I lose my pastor card. So I don't want to do that. I want to protect some people who are here. Um, I want to correct some teaching that's been done in the past um, because I think um, growing up in the circles I grew up in, the people that I grew up with, the reality is, is that the topic of marriage out of Ephesians 5 really got portrayed in a way that was harsh, legalistic, and a misunderstanding of what this passage is actually driving at. So let me, let me in order to do that, I've got to go all the way back to Genesis 2. And you guys are like, we're going to be here till noon I'm going to try not to. Genesis 2, you have this amazing um, description of the creative ability of God. And he creates man. He created man and woman in his image. And, and at first he creates man. And, and he's got all the animals and all the creatures. And God looks at man. And after calling everything else good, he says, and that's good. And that's good. Oh, that was very good. And that's good. And that's good. And that's good. And then he makes this comment, it is not good to man be alone. It is not good to man be alone. And so I believe that what God is doing is trying to make sure Adam understands how not good it is for him to be alone and how alone he actually is. Because God then parades all of the animals before him and Adam is supposed to name them. And, I, and you've got to get the rhythm of Genesis chapter 2 down in order to fully appreciate what happens. Okay? So, so you've got this, Adam is here sitting and, I, and here comes the parade of animals and he's like, oh, nope, that's, that's not, not my companion. Nope, that's, that's not my companion. Hey, that's cool. Not coming. What is that? I mean, you've got this whole process, right? Nope. 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 No, it goes on a lot longer. But that rhythm is important. Nope. 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 Sleep. God knocks him out. And when he wakes up, Isha. That's the Hebrew word for, for woman. This one, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I mean, it's the worst poetry ever. But you got to give the guy some credit. He's new at it. 
But what he sees before him is like, here it is. Here is the one who, who is like me. My companion. Now, there are two words that are used uh, in Genesis chapter 2 as it talks about the creation of woman. And, and oftentimes they are misapplied. The first word is compliment. This is a person who compliments Adam. And I, and I think we, we misspell it. <laughs> we misspell it. Too many churches have leaned towards a comp. I meant there's an I. That means to highlight, to flatter, to add praise to. So that teaching would say that Eve was created to make much of Adam. That's heresy. One of the things that God has taught me this week that I'm trying to be obedient to is that I must risk saying hard things for the good of God's people. To teach that man is a greater creature than woman is heresy. You have placed man, masculinity, as a god. That's trying to replace the true god. No, it's not compliment, it's compliment. There's an E inside of it. It means to bring to completion, bring to perfection. They are counterparts. These, these two, men and women, are distinct but dependent on each other. It, it gives us a, a more full picture of the revelation of God. The other word that's used in Genesis 2 is help. I'm going to create Adam a helper. And it doesn't mean that the man goes out and does the work and she makes coffee. That's not, not what he's saying. That word helper is the Hebrew word ezer. The only other time in Scripture, in all of Scripture, the only other time that word ezer is ever used, it is used for God. God is my help in this time of trouble. God is my help and my shelter. God is my help and my fortress. God is my help and my shield. It is not a lesser than. Is God lesser than you? Does God exist just to come to your rescue? No, 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 no. What it means is God comes alongside you to to bolster you up in your weakness. It means we're inefficient. He fills us. We lack. He has the same thing in this relationship, man and woman. Both sexes bear the image of God fully on their own, but each one does it in a unique and a distinct way. Those lines have been blurred over the past years. We can't allow those lines to be blurred. Male, male and female reflect truths about God when they are together that they do not reflect when they are separate, when they are alone. So when these two created beings come together, the result is this far more complete revelation of the very image of God. So male and female are created in the image of God, equal in dignity, in standing, in potential, even in calling. They're equal in calling. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule it, cultivate it. But even within that system of God's created order, they fulfill two very unique and different roles. So there's a tension that exists. Men and women are the same, but they're different. And there's time for that in other places. I've got to get back to Ephesians chapter 5 because they also have two very different roles within the marriage relationship. And I'm going to kind of blow through this somewhat quickly, but I think, hopefully I won't lose you. So, so obviously it starts off just very poetically in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul being so very careful with his words. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Amen. Let's pray. Um, submission is a dirty word in our culture today. Let me, let me do this. So let me tell you what submission isn't. How's that? Let me start there. What submission isn't. Submission isn't uh, a command to put up with abuse. So you can sleep through the rest of the message. I don't care. But I want to make sure everybody hears this. So somebody next to you sleep and kick them. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> submission is not a command to put up with abuse. If a husband is abusing a wife, we will call the husband to repentance after we call the police. Please understand that. Submission is not a command to put up with abuse. Submission is not chauvinistic. It doesn't mean women submit to all men. This is very clear. This is spoken to a wife. She is told to submit to her husband. There's been some jacked up teaching from the misunderstanding of that. It's not inferiority. Again, we just went through that. God is not inferior. And the word ezer is used of him. Jesus Christ submitted. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He is not inferior. Submission does not make you inferior. Submission is not forced upon you. Hey, husbands, mind your own business. That's pre-marriage counseling. I do that in every pre-marriage counseling. Mind your own business. God doesn't tell you to tell your wife to submit to you. God talks to her. You have your own verses to pay attention to. We'll get to those. So, so mind your own business and pay attention to your verses, okay? Let her worry about hers. Submission is not to be confused with obedience. There's a touchy one. Ladies, you are not commanded to obey your husband. It's also not, submission is not a call for the women, the wives, to be silent. No, 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 no. Submission doesn't mean you lose your personality personality of somebody else. Your perspective, your opinions, your expertise is desperately needed. Proverbs 31 tells us that when the wife speaks, everybody shuts up and listens because there's such wisdom coming from her. You and I both know that wives are often far smarter than their husbands. If you need an example of that, just come to my home anytime. Submission is this. You yield your authority, your power, your gifts, your abilities to serve your husband. Submission means you are willing to lay aside your rights and imitate Christ's example in serving your husband, even when it's not easy, as an expression of love to your husband and obedience to God. What is submission? Submission is willingly yielding those things. It's asking your spouse, and you're going to hear this again, ladies, so, so don't, don't check out. It's asking your spouse. What can I do to serve you today? How can I help you today? How can I come alongside you today? How can I encourage you today? How can I be your biggest fan today? Husbands. Husbands. Verse 25. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, 
and provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. While I think there's a lot of explanation that's needed for us to understand both the context and culture of what submission is for wives, you don't need to say a lot after reading that, do you? Just as Jesus loved the church, Is that how you love your wife? (laughs) Not me. How did Jesus how did Jesus love the church? With humility? Remember Philippians two, he made himself of no reputation and willingly stepped out of heaven for you. And a loving husband will deny himself of his rights in order to serve his wife. How did Jesus love the church? Selflessly? And what Jesus did was to make you holy through his actions. A loving husband will be focused on what he can do to meet his wife's needs. Pursuit. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to pursue and to save the lost. Husbands, you are supposed to be competing for your wife's companionship and her heart. I think too often... My wife reminded me of this. I freaked her out when we were dating um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, but one of the conversations we had was um, I made the, con- that, well, I, okay, so I was a relationship addict throughout high school. It was, it was everything that I talked about at the beginning of this, trying to find fulfillment and, and realizing that was not there. Finally, I met my wife. Um, and so we were dating and I made that comment to her. I was like, I just got into the rhythm of woo, 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 I got her. I'm bored. What's next? Break up. Woo, woo, woo. My pa- It's a horrible story. I feel like I need a little tension break, though. I was dating one young lady in high school. <laughs> it was back when notes were cool and phones weren't in yet. Okay, So we used to write each other notes all the time. Right? So, um, in classes, I wrote a note. She wrote a note. And we would walk past each other going to class and be like, hey, oh, hi. Okay, that kind of thing, right? So uh, I wrote a note that said, hey, I really think we should probably break up because I was a man. And I handed that to her, and she handed me a note, and I went, and to my horror, I opened it up and said, I really think I might love you. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is your pastor, the king of relationships. <laughs> I have no idea why I told you that story, but other than humiliate myself, praise the Lord. <laughs> Pursuit, that's what it was. Guys, I think too often we get into marriage, and we're just like, I'm here, and you can't go anywhere because the contract said so. I heard your vows. You promised. It is your responsibility, men, to date your wife. It is your responsibility, men, to pursue her. As First Peter tells us, to live with her in knowledge. And be careful, this is a trap. I did this a few years ago and somebody fell for it. Okay, You know the joke, it's like, women, who can understand them? Uh, yeah, that's not a joke. That's your admission of guilt. Because you're supposed to understand your wife. Pursue her. How did Jesus love the church? He sacrificed for her. He took your rightful place on the cross. A husband who loves his wife will yield his comfort and his convenience at any cost for the best for his wife. Why? For her good. Not yours. 
So what is love? Love means you are willing to lay aside your rights and imitate Christ's example in serving your wife, even when it's not easy, as an expression of love to her and obedience to God. See, it's the same definition as submission because love is just an avenue of submission to one another. Why? Why are we supposed to do this? Why are we supposed to do this? Now, you can listen to a hundred different people and they will give you a hundred different reasons. Why, why am I supposed to submit to my husband? Why am I supposed to love my wife? Because, because it makes marriages last longer than ones that don't? Maybe. Because our culture, our culture is showing the effects of marriage that are culture-shaped and consumeristic and we need to redeem marriage. Certainly, absolutely. Because young people thrive under healthy marriages and they tend to struggle a little more in broken homes, Okay. Because those Democrats, okay, just stop. <laughs> because we don't have the problems today like we used, like, we don't have the problems back in the good old days like we have today. <laughs> if you believe that, let me remind you, they were definitely old days, weren't as good as we remember them. Just forget that thinking. They were just as broken then. Then why? Why are we supposed to do this then? It's not, a, it's not a cultural moment. It's way bigger than a cultural moment. It's way bigger than the statistics, the politics, the, the traditional view of marriage even, even though I hold to that and will continue to hold to that biblically. This is about walk worthy of the calling that you've been called to. Live worthy of that invitation from God to you to enter into a relationship with him through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's about loving God so very much because of what he's done for us that if he has called us to something, we will drop everything and do it, period. It's about far more than just breaking a trend or being happy. Those are beautiful byproducts, but we are supposed to walk worthy because what marriage does is it pictures the greatest love man has ever seen. Look at the end of this just chapter. I mean, Paul's walking through. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. He keeps going, keeps going. This reason, verse 31, he quotes uh, Genesis 2. This reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And you, you get a sense of Paul just staring off into the sky all of a sudden like, wow, that is profound. Oh, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I, I, sorry. My, my mind drifted. Because as I got talking about marriage, I stopped thinking about marriage. And I started thinking about the piece of artwork that is painted through marriage. The profound relationship between Christ and the church. And he just kind of wraps it up like, all right, just, just sum up. Each of you love, love your wife like yourself and the wife's respect her husband. Let's move on. He gets distracted as he describes marriage by the beautiful picture of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. you got to understand that what God has done, it wasn't like marriage existed and God went, oh, that'll make a good illustration of what I'm trying to say. Not how it works. God, God chooses to paint this masterpiece of his love. He, 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 he paints a masterpiece of his, his pursuit of us. Of us serving him. And he paints that picture through marriage. The way that, that men and women are, are drawn together. It's the reason we get emotional at weddings. Besides the fact that it costs a million dollars. But you get emotional at weddings when the music starts and the people stand and there in the back is the bride and she begins her walk towards the front. And it is, it's like, whoa. We, we see the culmination of the dance 
that has been happening between boy and girl for all those years. You, you know the dance, right? <laughs> it's a weird dance. It started with the cooties. I want nothing to do with those girls. Cooties, cooties. It's good. Ew, gross, girls, ew. And then you go to a middle school dance that looks like a Mennonite church service with the boys over here and the girls over here, right? And it's like, okay, this is getting really awkward because now it's not cooties and ew, cooties and ew, gross. It's, it's, they're looking across at each other. Nobody's dancing at those things. But they're looking across at each other like, I could ask her, but I won't because, yeah, it's not that important. And then suddenly along the way, it turns into not cooties, not ew, gross, not boys and girls. All of a sudden, all of a sudden this moment comes like, I want one of those. <laughs> and it is amazing to see the transformation that occurs, particularly in young men. We're like, yeah, I'm not going to go watch no rom- rom- rom-com. Rom-coms for losers. Oh, you want to go watch the Jennifer Aniston movie? Come on, honey, let's go. It's like, who are you? This beautiful dance that God has designed for the purpose of showing how loved you are by God. That's just biology. Yeah, it is. God designed the biology in such a way so that we got to enjoy the artwork. See, see, relationships like that are a picture of God's romantic pursuit of us. Now, Guys are like, oh, the romantic pursuit of us. Okay, listen, dudes, get over it. The ladies have to be called the sons of God all the time. You're the bride of Christ. That's not something to roll your eyes at. But the fact that the husband would make his entire life about pursuing his wife, loving her in a way that is sacrificial, thinking of her needs and submitting himself to serve her out of love so that she can stand before the Father complete. Paul says that right there, that that Christ-shaped relationship of the husband loving the wife. That's the picture of Jesus Christ's love for his bride, the church, you. The fact that a wife would willingly submit and yield her gifts, her talents, her abilities, her power, in order to serve her husband for what was best for her husband. Paul says that Christ-shaped relationship where the wife submits in this way to the husband, that's a picture of the church's love and and respect for her Redeemer, that the bride of Christ lives in an understanding of what it means to be loved by God. Marriage also gives us the opportunity to reflect the love, the grace, and the mercy that we've experienced through Jesus Christ. Um, hear this to the end. E-Harmony sells lies. Now, I'm not bashing on online dating. I think there's some pitfalls, but I think there's some advantages as well, so just don't hear me bashing it completely. But, but E-Harmony sells this idea, this underlying foundational premise of E-Harmony, that if you find the perfect person who matches you perfectly you will have the perfect marriage. <laughs> I love the people who laughed. It's like, yep, we know. Because, I mean, honestly, if you're here, you, you, everybody's in a different place in their marriage, right? So you got, you got the newlyweds here are like, I could never imagine being angry. <laughs> and then those of us who've been married a long time are cracking up at that, like, I can. 
just happened in the parking lot. But look, we're still talking. We figured this out, right? <laughs> there are absolutely no perfect people. There are no perfect husbands. There are no perfect wives. There are no perfect marriages. If you don't believe that, think about it this way. If Jesus had to die for your spouse, I'm pretty sure they're going to irritate you a few times. We're all sinners. We come into our marriage with all kinds of baggage. So what marriage does is it gives us as husbands and wives an opportunity to demonstrate the grace that has been shown to us. The forgiveness that we didn't deserve but can show to other people. Ladies, I know it's hard to be respectful to a husband who makes dumb choices. It's hard to to willingly support him. And men, I know, it's tough to love an unlovely wife. And I'm not talking about appearances. But what's happening in Ephesians 5 is Paul is trying to remind us, you remember, you were dead in your sins, right? You remember that Jesus Christ loved you not because you were lovable, or lovely, he made you lovely. And that's the responsibility of husband and wife within the marriage. That's how we're supposed to love our spouses, not as a response to them being good to us, but as an aggressive action of service towards them. Don't have a lot of time for this, but marriage has slipped into a contractual obligation instead of a covenantal delight. The difference is a contractual obligation. It'd be weird to go to a, a wedding where there was a contract being negotiated. I mean, you get to right now, you go to weddings, you're like, no, do you promise to love, honor, cherish, wait, blah, 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 as long as you're supposed to live richer or poorer, sickness and health, right? That's the covenant. It doesn't matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. Contractual would be two people standing in front of the church being like, I'll tell you what, if you do the dishes, then I might wash the laundry. Oh, no, 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 laundry is a non-negotiable. I will warm your car up in the morning, but you have to do the laundry, and I want a cup of coffee every morning. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. That would be weird, wouldn't it? But that's what most marriages are like. They don't make those promises. But you get into a relationship, and you're like, you know, she's not picking up her end of the deal. Time for me to break the contract. Now, marriage is a covenant. An opportunity for you to show unmerited favor and grace towards your spouse. But Frank, it's hard. You don't know what you're asking me. I mean, come on. <laughs> I, here's the other part. My wife's not in this service, so I, I sound really like I got, I'm on my game. But I promise you, I would admit it in front of her, I am not. That woman puts up with more garbage for me than any human should ever have to deal with. But she is the picture of grace and kindness and mercy and forgiveness. But she could very easily just be like, nope. Here's the problem. When we read a passage like this, and, and I do, I think loving your wife and submitting to your husband are on the equal playing field with difficulty. That's too hard. I can't do that. 
and yet we come to worship. We sing about how God's love is rich. How God is slow to anger. How his heart is so kind. How good God is. We'll just keep singing about his goodness. We, we sing songs like, you know, when I stop and I look at the cross, the cross on which my Savior died, everything about it, just put it all aside. We're the whole realm of nature mind. If I owned everything that had ever existed, that had ever been created, we're the whole realm of nature mind, then that's a gift that is far too small. Because of the love that God had for me, so divine, demands my life, demands, demands everything about me. I should hold nothing back. But when we get to this passage, we're like, submit to your husband and love your wife. Too many times we're like, not today. It demands my life my love, and my all. It's difficult. Marriage ain't easy. At 27 years, coming up here in May, some of them have been some difficult years. How do you do it? What's the secret? Actually, you've got to go backwards a little in our text. Do not be controlled or drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. But instead, may your life be demonstrated, characterized by this and this alone. Be filled by no external thing, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Which then leads to speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, giving thanks always for everything to God, and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. You know how you walk worthy? You allow yourself to continually be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ through the regular, constant, and repeated filling of the Holy Spirit. You ask him for his help. And then you listen. And then you do. There's a novel idea. It's hard. And it's glorious. Because at the end, as I consider <laughs> the two-headed monster that I want to become in my 80s with my wife. Where we're in the truck, driving down the road, sitting so close to each other that people can only see the shadow Well, you don't get there unless you regularly die to yourself, and you don't get there unless you allow the Spirit to continue to fill you, control you, guide you, and direct you. What are you holding back? What are you holding back? Father, thank you for your word. I praise you for the, the gift of marriage that it is. Oh, Lord, I thank you that that in our marriages you don't demand perfection or expect us to be flawless. <laughs> but instead you give us regular opportunities to repent and to be made right. Now God, I ask that for our husbands, for our wives here in the room, 
that, that we would have yielded our complete and total control to you. And then I ask that we would serve one another out of love for each other. God, I know there are marriages even represented in this room right now that are struggling. Lord, I pray husbands would lead in humility and repentance. I pray our husbands and wives would have open, honest conversations with each other and yield themselves to you as they yield themselves to each other. God, I thank you for the picture that you've given to us in marriage. How we're reminded regularly how much you love us. God, may that be something we don't forget. It's in Christ's wonderful and matchless name I pray. Amen.